a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, it's another beautiful day in post-reality America. <laughs> yeah, if you want to stay tethered to reality, you got your work cut out for you. Thankfully, there are faithful hosts like me. Not here to tell you what to think, but to uh, gently encourage you to go ahead and embrace the hard work of thinking for yourself. And uh, don't worry about, uh, don't worry so much about the things we can't change, but let's focus on the things that, that we absolutely can now, that can be a pretty tough balance to strike, and uh, I'm not going to pretend like uh, there aren't times that I'm, I'm I, I won't pretend that I don't get discouraged and sometimes feel like, wow, you know, we are totally circling the drain and, and about ready to take the terminal plunge here. It, it, it looks and in many cases feels hopeless. It's not. And the reason it's not hopeless is simply because there are, uh, there are principles that are at play here that are not just, you know, a political fad. But, uh, but eternal principles, There's a, there is a, how can I put this? I don't want to turn this into Sunday school. Open your Bibles to uh, the New Testament here. Uh, but there, there, is a, there is a battle between light and darkness that has been going on forever. And every bit of contention and every controversy that you see playing out before us is nothing more than an extension of that battle. Now, when you have more of an eternal perspective on it, Suddenly, it starts to make a little bit more sense. The names and the faces might change, but the dynamic behind it is still very much the same. And it's, it's not so much a matter of, you know, let's, let's uh, put on our you know, armor and go out and fight a crusade with the sword and convert people by the sword. We don't have to do that. But we do need to focus on being sources of light. Light is what drives out darkness, and, and I, I just love how Andy Frizzella puts it. He puts it in a far less religious sense, but he's absolutely correct when he says the most revolutionary thing you can do is become a truly great person. Now, that can encompass a lot of different parts of your life, okay? Um, start with your character, okay? This is one place where you and I have absolute control is what kind of a person will I be? Will I be a person who is true to my word? Will I be a person who lives up to my principles, doesn't just proclaim them, but actually lives up to them? No politician can take that from you. And in fact, I, I want to start with something here. This, this has just been on my mind for the last couple of days, and I just can't get it out. So I feel like maybe this is the message that, that somebody needs to hear. Maybe I'm the somebody who needs to hear it. But I think about this essay from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Live Not By Lies. You know, the day that Solzhenitsyn was arrested, that would be February 12th of 1974. Yes, this was the other time he was arrested. He released the text of Live Not By Lies. And the very next day after his arrest, they exiled him to the West, kicked him out of Russia. Well, the Soviet Union at the time. But he came to the West for a hero's welcome. And that moment marks the peak of his fame. Now, Solzhenitsyn, when he talks about lies, he's equating lies with ideology, the illusion that human nature and society can be reshaped to predetermined specifications. And his last word before leaving his homeland urges Soviet citizens as individuals to refrain from cooperating with the regime's lies. Now, even the most timid 
can take this least demanding step towards spiritual independence. But if many march together on this path of passive resistance, the whole inhuman system will totter and collapse. Now, this is the introduction to his essay. This is a, a foreword, if you will, by Eric Erickson, Edward Erickson, rather, and Daniel Mahoney. But I'm just going to hit a couple of excerpts. I, I will link to this, and in the, in the article you'll find links that will take you to the short essay, Live Not By Lies. But what Solzhenitsyn is teaching us is how to live under tyranny and how to triumph under it, whether it's communist state-sponsored authoritarianism or the kind of oppression that manifests itself in private, public, woke social pressure that we're seeing today. The West actually is kind of an amalgamation of both of these things. But his essay, Live Not By Lies, is one of the greatest works of human thought, and it's the very thing that tyrants of every persuasion fear the most. So if you, uh, if you feel the need, I want to push back. I want to be part of the resistance against this, against this woke, totalitarian juggernaut. This is how you do it. Solzhenitsyn, who knows a thing or two about, you know, standing up to a totalitarian system, he shows the pathway to resistance and human dignity, even from within the maw of monsters who claim the right to tell us how to think, how to police our words, you know, whether they want to rob us of our God-given liberties. Oh, what was the story I saw yesterday? Minnesota is, is in the process, they're proposing this, creating a bias registry. So, you know, if you're wearing a shirt, hey, J.K. Rowling is cool, that could land you on the bias registry. We're talking official lists of people who will not uh, think correctly, people engaged in wrong think. Okay, there's a reason why the motto of this humble little show is revel in wrong think. I'm not telling you you should agree with everything I say. I'm saying be willing to think outside the lines that someone else has drawn for you and be proud of it. Revel in it. It's the only way to claim your freedom to think for yourself, to, to choose your allegiance to follow your conscience. Lurking behind smiles and rainbows and talk of love is the concentration camp in the shallow grave. And you're starting to see that, that mask slip. Remember, it was first, we just want to be left alone and you know we just want equal rights. And now it's like, you will give us your kids, you will give us you know all the affirmation we require or we will get violent. I'm specifically looking at the, 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 the trans madness that's sweeping across the, the societal planes. It's, it's disturbing, not only because it's so detached from reality, but there is a very dark dynamic behind it, the dynamic that would put people in camps for thinking incorrectly, that would justify killing people on a mass scale because they think differently. The point here is we don't have to live like this. So if you have not read or listened to Live Not By Lies, then it's time to stop what you're doing and, and find the time to read this essay. It's not something that's going to take you days to get through. It's not, okay, this is not the unabridged version of the uh, Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. But ponder what he has to say. Take his words to heart. And I'll just throw this out there too. If, if, if you're concerned about the deceptions and misinformation out there, just remember, Satan is the father of lies. Tyranny is built on lies. It plays out in human suffering, fear, and death. But we are called to live not by lies. And I'm just going to summarize what, uh, what Solzhenitsyn said here. He says it much, much better, but... 
But the idea is when we are called upon to step out and or to, to when we're called upon to basically chant in unison with everybody else, trans women are women or whatever the, you know, the, the fad, the moral imperative of the day is under, under the current activism, refusing to say what they are telling you, you must say is one way to resist the light. Don't play into it. Don't repeat it. You're not persecuting people. You're not going out of your way to make people feel bad. And, you know, you're not trying to genocide them by failing to acknowledge and affirm their existence. You're simply choosing not to participate in a lie. And you can do so with kindness. You can do so with compassion. And by the way, I I just, I have to say this. The people who are struggling with this uh, gender dysphoria or with with gender identity crises, I believe, are in crisis very much. I, I believe it's a product of of mental health, and there is there is something, there's a mental illness that's at play here. And I don't say that to be condescending or to say therefore they ought to be locked up in an asylum somewhere. They need help. I've heard at least a couple of people who once had gender dysphoria, and by the way, they're both, one is a psychologist, one is a, a licensed counselor, talk about how it's related to unresolved trauma, sexual abuse as a child, or emotional abuse as a child. And when the abuse is actually addressed, when they get therapy for not their, their gender dysphoria, but for the actual abuse that they've suffered, guess what goes away? That gender confusion. So I'm, I know it it sounds like, well, Brian, you sound like you're taking a pretty firm stand here, but I'm not encouraging you to be an enemy driven person. There, there's, there's nothing productive to be gained in defining yourself by who or what you're against. At the same time, it's going to take some backbone to stand up and not repeat the lies and not play into, you know, just to be nice and go along. Don't give the lie power by participating in it. I like how Solzhenitsyn puts it. He says, a person who who has chosen to live not by lies will not write, sign, or publish in any way a single line distorting, so far as he can see, the truth. They won't cite in work or cite in writing or speech a single guiding quote for gratification, insurance, for success at work, unless they fully share the cited thought and believe it fits the context precisely. In other words, they won't pretend to believe something they don't actually believe just to gain the approval of the crowd. No, it's not easy. You will be called names. You will be maligned. But you'll be living up to truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Look, I know it's in really bad form to say, I told you so. But the more the truth comes out about uh, lockdowns and the COVID uh, policies and uh, vaccine mandates and so forth, it's hard not to feel like, yeah, you know, I think we've earned the right to say, I've told you so. In fact, uh, some people would like to spring a little profanity. I freaking told you so, but... I, I want to share with you some excerpts from an article by Jeffrey Tucker. This is from the Brownstone Institute. The top 10 quotes from the New York Times Fauci interview. A very revealing interview. In fact, uh, Jeffrey says, this may be the most in-depth interview yet. The New York Times published a very long piece containing some rather startling admissions, claims, and defenses from Anthony Fauci, the face of lockdowns and shot mandates. 
Now, the interviewer and author is David Wallace Wells, who before and now after COVID specialized in writing about climate change, and he invokes every predictable trope. So there was a sense in which this interview was a love fest between the two. But it still netted some interesting results. So these are the top 10 quotes that Jeffrey Tucker saw in this interview. Number one, Fauci says, something clearly went wrong, and I don't know exactly what it was. But the reason we know it went wrong is that we are the richest country in the world, and on a per capita basis, we've done worse than virtually all other countries. Jeffrey Tucker says, that seems promising, but one quickly realizes there's an axiom among people responsible for the, for the lockdowns. They were completely correct in their thinking, right? The problem was not enough centralization, prior planning, or resources. Also, there was too much disinformation and noncompliance leading to low vaccine uptake compared with other countries. The vaccines are the miracle and the greatest achievement of the pandemic, a point on which they admit no argument. Now, he says that's also the conclusion of a thing called the COVID Crisis Group, funded mostly by Charles Koch and the Rockefeller Foundations, which released the new book, Lessons from the COVID War, an investigative report. Now, there is no PDF. You have to buy the book. But the lead author, author rather, is well-known fixer Philip Zelikow, who wrote the 9-11 Commission Report. Included among the team is none other than Carter Mecher, who bears more responsibility for school closings than anyone else. There's also Rajiv Venkaya, the one-time Bush administration official widely credited with having invented the very concept of lockdowns. So this is their story, and they're sticking to it. Here's Fauci on vaccine mandates. This is number two. Man, I think almost paradoxically, you had people who were on the fence about getting vaccinated thinking, why are they forcing me to do this? And that that sometimes beautiful independent streak in our country becomes counterproductive. And you have that smoldering anti-science feeling, a divisiveness, a divisiveness rather, that's palpably political, that's palpable politically in this country. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says, if you didn't think you needed the vaccine or didn't trust it, Fauci proclaims that you're responsible for divisiveness and anti-science feeling. The independent streak is called freedom, which for him is the real problem. The lesson for next time? Well, it's hard to know. Maybe he thinks mandates should have been enforced with more energy. Quote number three, Fauci on the economics of lockdowns. Quote, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is not an economic organization. The Surgeon General is not an economist. So we looked at it from a purely public health standpoint. It was for other people to make broader assessments, people whose positions include but aren't exclusively about public health. Those people have to make the decisions about the balance between the potential negative consequences of something versus the benefits of something. End quote. Jeffrey Tucker says, there we go with the great divide between public health and real life, as if one does not impact the other. Public health cared not for economics, the science of human cooperation. And sadly, the economists were too often unschooled on public health. So the compartmentalization of specialty fields played into the haphazard totalitarianism we experienced. Quote number four, Fauci on why he was not responsible for anything. Quote, when people say Fauci shut down the economy, it wasn't Fauci. The CDC was the organization that made those recommendations. I happen to be perceived as the personification of those recommendations. But show me a school that I shut down and show me a factory that I shut down. Never. I never did. I gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendation and people made a decision based on that. But I never criticized the people who had to make the decisions one way or the other. He was merely referring to a giant bureaucracy where no one takes responsibility either. Wow. Quote number five, Fauci, on how they should have locked down earlier. 
We were not fully appreciative of the fact that we were dealing with a highly, highly transmissible virus that was clearly spread by ways that were unprecedented and unexperienced by us. And so it fooled us in the beginning and confused us about the need for masks and the need for ventilation and the need for inhibition of social interaction. End quote. So, should they have shut down in February of 2020? He says, we, pro- we should have, probably, if we knew what we know now. <sighs> Inexperienced in a textbook respiratory virus? Jeffrey Tucker says it's because they thought it was a bioweapon that could be handled like AIDS. Masks were the condoms. Lockdowns were the behavioral changes. Minimizing of cases was the metric of success. And on every point, they were wrong. Plus, they didn't even learn from the AIDS experience. It wasn't the vaccines that cooled the virus. It was the therapeutics innovated in clinical experience. Instead, Fauci shut down all efforts at early treatment to wait for the vaccines. Having done it earlier would have been even worse. Quote number six. I found this one of particular interest. Fauci on on the effectiveness of masking. Quote, From a broad public health standpoint at the population level, masks work at the margins, maybe 10%. But for an individual who religiously wears a mask, a well-fitted KN95 or N95, it's not at the margin, it really does work. But I think anything that instigated or intensified the culture wars just made things worse. And I have to be honest with you, David, when it comes to masking, I don't know. End quote. He doesn't know. Well, at least he admits it. Yet the CDC is still suing for the legal right to impose masking on the whole population whenever it wants. Unreal. Fauci on not understanding the virus. This is quote number seven. He says, herd immunity is based on two premises. One, that the virus doesn't change. And two, that when you get infected or vaccinated, the durability of protection is measured in decades, if not a lifetime. With SARS-CoV-2, we thought protection against infection was going to be measured in a long period of time. And we found out, wait a minute, protection against infection and against severe disease is measured in months, not decades. Number two, the virus that you got infected with in January 2020 is very different from the virus you're going to get infected with in 2021 and 2022. End quote. So to be clear, nothing about herd immunity requires lifetime immunity. And it certainly is not premised on an unchanging virus. Indeed, Jeffrey Tucker says it's astonishing that he claims they had no idea the virus would mutate. It's an established reality that such widespread and mostly non-deadly pathogens like this mutate, which is precisely why they cannot be eradicated through vaccination. Why must anyone have to explain virus basics to Fauci, of all people? Quote number eight, Fauci on the huge age gradient of medically significant risk. Quote, did we say that the elderly were much more vulnerable? Yes. Did we say it over and over and over again? Yes, yes, yes. But somehow or other, the general public didn't get that feeling that the vulnerable are really, really heavily weighted toward the elderly. Like 85% of hospitalizations are there. End quote. So in fact, their solution was to shut down the whole of society for a virus that was mostly, if not entirely, a danger to the aged and sick. And to justify that, They absolutely did obscure the risk gradient, which is why most everyone was running around like their hair was on fire. The attempt was precisely to create population fear and panic, as Fauci said many times in private. Now, here on his quote on whether the NIH funded the lab that leaked the virus, now you're saying things that are a bit troublesome to me, that I need to go to bed tonight worrying that NIH-funded research was responsible for pandemic origins. Well, I sleep fine. I sleep fine. And remember, this work was done in order to be able to help prepare us for the next outbreak. 
This work was not conceived by me as I was having my omelet in the morning. It is a grant that was put before peer review of independent scientists whose main role is to try to get data to protect the health and safety of the American public and the world. And it was judged that this type of research was important. End quote. So once again, if the NIH had anything to do with funding the research that led to the virus, why, he's not responsible for that either. It was those pesky independent scientists. Again, he's throwing his colleagues under the bus. Now, there's one other quote. I'm not going to have time to get to it, but it's on gain-of-function research. Bottom line is, Fauci and his friends are trying to close the book on the COVID epic. They have settled on their messaging. They're doing everything possible to tie it up in a bow in hopes that everyone will move on. And by the way, the mainstream media wants to move on too. Everyone guilty for the wreckage wants to do the same, particularly the elites in every sector that pushed for and celebrated the mass violation of human rights. But Jeffrey Tucker says they're wrong. The book isn't closed and won't be till we get answers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors. And a recommendation that if you have need of their products or services, please feel free to visit them. You can find them linked in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. I got to give a shout out to uh, to Bill Colley, who is the uh, host of uh, the local uh, talk station here in southern Idaho. Uh, Bill is a great host, and he's also got a good eye for uh, for noteworthy articles and it's it's kind of fun to see that uh, he and i definitely we we find ourselves uh, uh, drinking from the same sources of information this is a terrific article by vincent mccaffrey bill shared this yesterday on social media it's called in our time and vincent mccaffrey is asking the question how is it that previous generations did so much with so little and are we still living and we're still living rather now on what they built in fact he asks the question are we beyond rebuilding Now, Vincent McCaffrey says, I look into the sleeping face of my four-month-old granddaughter and find myself considering the fact that in a few days, it will be the 100th birthday of my mother. And he says, there's a pause in me over this realization because she's gone now from the scene. And I cannot help but know that I have been very fortunate. I would like my granddaughter's world to be at least as good as mine has been and better than my mother's was. Now, he goes into some background on his mom. He says, my mother was born to a poor family. Her parents were uneducated. They knew nothing of the books I love so much. My grandmother was a seamstress, a fancy word for someone who can sew, as she did all her life, as well as to clothe her 11 daughters and to clean the small house they had built and to farm the food her family ate and to cook simple meals so good that the memory of it might be the last sweet thought I have before I die. Theirs was a red dirt world, and my grandmother's life was not easy. Out of what's academically called economic necessity, she left behind a storied family in the deep, smoky mountains to work in a textile mill when she was still only 15 years old. In turn, my mother left her mother's world behind when she was 17, just out of high school, and went to work in a hot shop near Washington, D.C., where an older sister was already a waitress. For a farm girl to find herself suddenly dealing with a rude public, this must have come as something of a shock. Vincent McCaffrey says, My mother was, as all of her sisters were, very good-looking, and one older sister had gotten a job as a model with the Powers Agency in New York City. My mother followed her there and did very well. That was the real break in her life. 
She took speaking lessons to suppress her southern accent, educated herself to high fashion, and left any thought of poverty behind. He says, my mother raised four children who had no real idea behind the, beyond the shallow observations of summer and holiday visits to grandma's house of anything other than the great prosperity of the second half of the 20th century. Their daughters had given my grandparents as much as they could without making them dependent. So I had little understanding beyond the small five-acre red dirt farm that remained of what had come before. But he says that story is in itself quite astonishing considering the world I was given in my turn. He says, now I watch the sleeping face of my granddaughter and I'm confronted with a reality beyond my fixing. I cannot repair the damage of the years between. All that my mother and her mother worked for has been spent. Politics has become the coin of our time. The promise of fiat currency and false prophets has replaced the good. Animus is our only savings and it does no good now to complain or blame. He says, I sat with my grandparents and watched the first moon landing on a small black and white television. This was yet another product of the world I expected, but for them, it was pure wonder. The television itself was quite enough magic, and their comments then suggested the landing was just another show. But they had once been present when a Wright Brothers Army aircraft crash-landed in the stubble of a cornfield and still thought that it was a true wonder. Theirs was a time when wealth was not assumed to be a right, but a privilege, and earned by hard work and frugality. Those who were born to wealth and abused it would lose it. But of course they knew nothing of trust funds and tax exemptions and corporate reinvestments. With these vehicles, we've debased our currency with credit and debt to pay for our toys and leisure while we print cheap money to cheat those who are not smart enough to do the same. Vincent McCaffrey says, My, mother, my grandmother rather did not have any form of artificial birth control. And despite her strong religious faith, I don't believe I would be here if she had. My mother didn't have that option either. She was a very successful fashion model and would likely have opted for a longer career if she had. But I can only speculate that if she had chosen to avoid having children when she was doing so well, she might have regretted the decision in middle age. She had so many other regrets as it was. Recent generations have found little use in childbearing with credit easy. There are so many more important things to do, places to go, people to see. Children are too much trouble, a burden. And besides, besides, they're raised now more by the public schools and state mandates than the family. Let someone else do it. Someone else can cut our lawns or grow our food or cook our food. We will be perfectly happy to eat it. He says, in my time, what had been a special Christmas gift or two proliferated and became 10 or 12 not-so-special tokens of our ability to buy, on impulse, anything we wanted. Christmas was not improved by the gaudy display. He says, in my time, the family car became two, and then more as children grew old enough and the driveway became a parking lot. In my time, the camp in the woods became a vacation home and then a real estate investment while all camping skills were lost. Yet Sierra Club and Audubon memberships increased. Now, many would say these were improvements, but learn too late that love and affection cannot be purchased. Nature does not return our care. Families, once only broken by economic necessity, are now scattered merely by the winds of impulse, with little to anchor them to any one of the various homes they knew in childhood. He says, in my time, friendships were relegated to networking advantages, and true love devalued as the product of hormones and a figment of a foolish imagination. Marriage, for better or worse, became only for the better. 
most of the people in America in my grandparents' time would be considered poor by today's standards. In fact, he says, my mother said that to me on several occasions as she pondered her own life. But how is it they did so much with so little? And we're still living now on what they built. All the second homes and petty luxuries of middle-class America have been purchased with the credit that our parents and grandparents earned and left to us. And in the meantime, we have debased the very currency that we might have used to repay the debt to our own children. We brag about scientific achievements and longer lives. The doctor will see you now for seven minutes. The pharmacy will dispense your relief. But you will never go to the moon and your longer life will be spent alone in a retirement home. The AI will never bother to make a CGI of your life. You will never know the taste of a handmade buttermilk biscuit or homemade jam or lick the ripe blackberry on your fingers the moment after you picked it on a summer day. That nostalgia will never be yours. But at least you can argue over the better store-bought brand. Vincent McCaffrey says, You can pack yourselves into a metal and plastic blister of a boat and cruise the Caribbean, or all the old ports in Europe, or see Alaska from the rail. They are all so happy to see you there and thrilled each day to dance the same authentic jig they've danced for countless hordes before. The credit card payment will only be $150 per month. Or instead, you can download your thrills and adventure now with a $20 monthly subscription and mail order the same sweater from the comfort of your IKEA couch for less. The stuff in the duty-free shop was all made in China anyway. He says, in my time, we went from the strivings of my mother to have a better life to a life of hollow things and artificial means. Too late, I think she realized that she had mistaken the gloss for the fact. But in, in a single life, there's usually no going back. And back is not where it was in any case. Being poor was not being without. It was making do with less. Wanting more is not a sin. But for the way you get it. The cost of things is truly in what it takes to make them good. He says, my granddaughter will be okay if we don't manage to incinerate ourselves. I trust my daughter will see to that much, but we've spent our legacy. Our legacy, rather. The old values have been discarded for a computer-simulated effect, a semacrolum. High fashion now has no bearing on the human being within, just as Christmas has no connection to its source. Books are too much trouble to keep unless they can be stored on an electronic device. But when electricity becomes an extravagance, what then? As I see us watch our lives away in digital bits... He says, I can't help but wonder, would we be better off if an EMP were to wipe the slate clean, but for the memory in our own heads, and make us reclaim what is worth the trouble of reclaiming, each of us judging thereby what we care for most? What use is the rest except to constrain us, distract us, and bury us? We are so much better off with the smell of buttermilk on our hands and biscuits for breakfast instead of Fruit Loops. Vincent McCaffrey says, the losses are already irreparable. Too few have noticed, and those who do notice too often have lost the skills that made the things worth remembering. And he says, I ask myself today, are we beyond rebuilding? I know that may feel like a little stroll down, you know, memory lane, and, ah, he's just reminiscing, and nostalgia's kicking in here. But he does make a good point. And I like the fact that he's thinking uh, intergenerationally. Thinking about those who came before, thinking about those who will follow the connection we have to all of them 
So when we come back, got some ideas about what we could be doing today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome to the final segment today. So that Vincent McCaffrey article just really touched a nerve with me. How did our forebears do so much with so little? And frankly, I, I find myself wondering as I look around me and I'm like, holy cow. I'm back to accumulating. I'm piling up more stuff here just in case I'm going to need it someday. I feel so owned by my stuff. And I'm look, I'm not a guy who's rolling in the bucks and I'm not surrounded by all the luxuries. It's just but uh, but I have a lot to work with. And 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 I'm grateful for that. I don't want to sound like I'm I'm saying, you know, we should all be living in a cave with one set of homespun clothing because that's the way to go. But I think it might be a good idea while we're able to choose to do this, to be less attached to material things. Which, which leads me to the article that I want to share with you. This is from um, Heather Carson, talking about becoming a modern American pioneer, homesteading specifically. And I love this idea, not just because it's the romance of, oh, yes, you know, living in the country, providing more of your own food, being more self-reliant. It also, to me, seems like a very good way to remove yourself from the political power of people who want to control you. Not all of whom are politicians. Some of them are just, you know, those weird, twisted folks who think it's, you know, their job to tell other people what to do and and to tattle on anybody who's not, you know, marching in lockstep. No thanks. (laughs) That's not the company I want to keep. Here's how Heather Carson puts it. She says, six years ago, my husband and I moved our family of 10 to a five-acre hobby farm and a new lifestyle. Now, prior to this, we'd been living in an 1,100-square-foot brick home built in the 1940s near the boundary of St. Louis. She says, I loved that house. It had a breakfast nook and an enclosed sun porch we referred to as the three-season room. When we bought it, she says, I was five months pregnant with our first child, and over the next 11 years, we had a total of eight children, four of them in that very home as I was attended by a midwife. By the time our youngest of our youngest kids... A set of identical twins, by the time they were born, it was clear we could no longer live in that house. We'd outgrown it. So she says, late one night when I was up with the twins, thinking about what to do about our lack of space, I decided to simply Google old farmhouse on land in St. Louis. Now she says, I was dreaming. I didn't expect to find anything meeting these criteria, but I was wrong in the best of ways. The house was built in 1859 and had a wraparound porch and gabled windows. There were outbuildings, a pasture, and nearly five acres of beautifully cleared land with mature trees dotted throughout. We made an offer, and within weeks, we're packing up 12 years of living at our 1940s brick and moving into an 1859 farmhouse to begin homesteading. Now, Heather Carson says there's been a growing interest in homesteading for the last few years. But what is homesteading exactly? Homesteading, simply put, means living off the land. Homesteading conjures images of the early pioneers heading west with dreams of land ownership and a new life, and in many ways it's the essence of what it is to be an American. Modern homesteading involves growing your own food, preserving food, hunting, living off-grid, involvement in craft work such as sewing, woodworking, and leatherwork. 
It can also include homeschooling. Modern homesteading doesn't even have to include acreage and can be accomplished with a small yard. She says, for us, our goal in homesteading is not that our children become farmers or grow up to homestead themselves. Our goal is to provide the best environment for them to flourish and find their own passions and pursue them. And while our decision to homeschool was made long before moving to our farm, the two activities fit together perfectly. Heather Carson says, my own interest in homesteading goes as far back as I can remember. My children's, uh, my favorite children's books, rather, were also always involved gardens and farm life. And she says, I grew up working as a stable hand at the local horse ranch and always hoped that one day I'd have a horse of my own and a place to keep it. As modern homesteaders, modern homesteaders, rather, who homeschool, our days are spent tending to our land, animals, and each other in a messy but delightfully organic way. The schoolwork is interwoven with tending the garden, collecting eggs from the chicken coop, canning and preserving what we grow, caring for our goats, horse, and pony, and encouraging our children to gain mastery over their personal interests in their free time. She says, I love as well how homesteading makes us more connected to the seasons. In summer, the kids will run through the sprinkler in the veggie garden and reach down to grab a cucumber to snack on right from the vine. In spring, we sow seeds and plant out in the garden. In fall, we put the garden beds to sleep and prepare our animals for the cold. And in winter, we spend our time bonding over puzzles, games, and reading. Our children love their device time as much as the next kid, but we limit it as much as possible in favor of being connected to each other or cultivating a relationship with ourselves by allowing time and space for solitude. She says, I've been surprised how many people upon visiting our farm say to me that homeschooling and homesteading is their dream. The desire to slow down and unplug and make a more meaningful life has not been quenched by our increasing dependence upon technology. Technology is useful, but Heather Carson says we need a deeper connection to each other and the natural world if we're to face the future with a sense of calm optimism. Ooh, that line really spoke to me. She says, of course, every component of homesteading may not be for everyone, but incorporating into our lives a few elements from the homesteading lifestyle, such as getting outside or growing some herbs, is something we can all reap the benefits from. It's not too late to become an American pioneer. In fact, she says, there's no time better than the present. Now, in a small way, that's the, that's the goal I'm working towards as well. When my family and I moved back to Idaho after 25 years away, I can't convey how utterly blessed I felt that we were able to find, uh, first of all, find a place to rent because property values were just to the moon but we were able to find a beautiful little farmhouse with a wonderful view of the Magic Valley and, and just enough space to feel like, wow, we've got a little bit of elbow room here. It's actually a smaller house than we were in, but I don't feel like, oh, we're so cramped because I can step out on my back porch and, and I have, you know, thousands of acres of farmland stretching out in front of me. It's, it's really a remarkable thing. Wildlife of all different kinds. We have a covey of at least 30 different quail that come in morning and night into our yard. We have chickens, and, and we let our chickens, you know, have, have the run of the place. And um, they, they do free range during the day. I keep them, you know, protected at night in their chicken coop. And, you know, I, I'm, I am no farmer Joe. I don't have the skills that, uh, that the true farmers around here have. 
but we have a little degree of self-sufficiency. My in-laws have a very nice garden space. We're talking like 20 by 50 feet. It's big. We plant it up and we take care of it through the summer with their help and it produces more food than you can imagine. So I'm not quite there as far as, you know, I'm not a full homesteader. Although my daughter is involved in 4-H, she raises steers, she is raising a steer and a goat this year. And it's a wonderful source of income too, as well as responsibility. But I'll tell you, one of the things that spoke to me the most out of, out of uh, Heather Carson's article, when she talked about uh, the time to read and the, the time to, to visit books, and I think uh, Vincent McCaffrey referred to this in, in his article as well. More and more, I'm grateful for all those heavy boxes of books and all those heavy shelves of books that I have accumulated over the years. In my last move, I actually got rid of a lot of books that, that were, you know, nice, but not, not something that I was going to revisit. I, I basically went through and prioritized which ones would I want to keep? Which would I find more, more valuable if I were to go back and revisit them, you know, over and over? But I love the fact that we have those hard copies. Some of them are books about gardening or medicine or, you know, do-it-yourself kind of projects, you know, and that's, that's great. There are also classics and, uh, you know, the great books of Western civilization and so forth. I, I love to have those things available. One of the reasons why I'm such a proponent of having physical books is because right now, if you look around us, how many things are being changed, edited, sanitized for your protection, if you will, by the thought police? These books are not going to be edited. I can still read them in their original form and not some politically correct mishmash that somebody, you know, some thought commissar has put together because that's the only thing you're allowed to think. I know it may seem like a small thing and maybe maybe I'm just grasping at straws here. But the idea is I will think what I want to think. I will study what I want to study. And those books give me the opportunity to do so independent of somebody else's desires or lust to dominate me and to control, you know, what, what information I'm allowed to access. You know, the beauty of classics too is every time you go back to them, you can learn something. Your perspective will have grown. Your, your ability to understand will have increased. That's what makes it a classic. So thanks for, uh, thanks for taking this little trip with me through the show today. Please consider signing up for my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.